Good evening. Hey, if you haven't already, you can come up at this time and get the elements so we can partake together of communion at the conclusion of the Bible study. Those of you online, we want to welcome you and uh, encourage you also at this time to uh, get your elements ready so you can partake with us as well at the end of the study. While you're doing that, I just want to remind those of you that are here locally that we are going to have our prayer meeting coming up uh, this upcoming Tuesday, uh, 7 p.m. here in the sanctuary. Really hope that you're able to come and join with us as a church together, praying together. Uh, one chapter tonight, chapter 22, because chapter 22 comes after chapter 21, which is what we finished last week. So uh, just one chapter. That way we're not rushing through communion. Uh, interesting chapter. So why don't we pray? <laughs> we'll ask God's blessing on our time together. If you would, please join with me. Father in heaven, thank you so much. God, you need to now settle us down and settle our hearts and quiet our minds so that we can focus and concentrate and give you our undivided attention. So many things clamoring for our attention in this crazy world that we're living in. <laughs> Lord, please don't let that happen tonight. Don't let our minds wander. Don't let those distractions take us away or keep us away from that which you have for us tonight. Lord, we're just posturing ourselves before you as a hungry and thirsty people knowing that only you can satiate that hunger and that thirst that we have. And we're looking to you to do that, especially for those who are really struggling and hurting and weary and heavy laden. <laughs> Lord, we come to you as you said to. And uh, Lord, we know that you give us rest for our souls. So thank you, Lord, in advance for what you're going to do in our time together tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen and Amen. All right, so the chapter before us tonight could be rightfully read and even spoken to corrupt world leaders today, not that they would listen. Um, but it could be. Uh, even though this was written for them then, it is so apropos for us today, as we're going to see. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, is going to speak this word now to these kings. These were evil kings that did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And we're going to see specifically what that evil was. And chiefly it was that they oppressed the people, defrauded the people. And um, as I, you know, approach a, a teaching like this, I always like to ask myself a question. I think it's a question that needs to be asked and answered concerning every passage of Scripture. And that question is, why is this in our Bibles? I mean, there's going to be a couple places in this chapter where you're going to be like, okay, well, 
that's not a life verse. I don't have this verse on my wall or wallpaper. And uh, why, why is this here? And we know that every word in God's Word is inspired and it's there for a reason. So Lord, what is that reason? Why do I need to know this? And here's the answer to the question, at least as it relates to this chapter tonight. As I pondered and prepared my heart, it just seemed, as the Lord ministered to my heart, that this was not so much for the corrupt leaders. Oh, it's certainly for them. But actually it could be more so for those whom these corrupt leaders oppressed, to encourage them, because they were being crushed under the weight of the rank corruption of that day. And that doesn't even begin to express it. That's an understatement in every sense of the word. The corruption was so bad, it was so evil. And so I say that by way of an introduction to say this. I hope and pray that tonight's Bible study will be a great encouragement, especially as it relates to God having the final word concerning the evil and the corruption of our day. I think that's the takeaway for us tonight. And I know I've shared this very candidly, and we'll get started here in a moment, but real quick. I've shared this very candidly uh, over the years, how that this settles me and even keeps me sane, knowing that the perpetrators of the most evil corruption in this world today, they're not going to get away with it. Oh, they might think they're going to get away with it. They're not going to get away with it. God is going to settle the score, as we say. God is going to have the final word. And I think it's more, if you will, and we're going to see this a little bit on Sunday in First Peter. Um, it's really to encourage these battle-weary believers who were suffering extreme, and I mean extreme persecution, in Peter's day, the early church under Caesar Nero. And I think much can be said about the similarities in Jeremiah's day, and certainly fast forward to our day. This is a word fitly spoken. So I would like for us to, as we go through this chapter, do so through that lens that this is God's way of saying to us, you just hang on. <laughs> I'm going to take care of it. Yeah, but do you see what they're doing? I, I, I'll take care of this. So you ready? Verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Go down to the house of the king of Judah, and there speak this word and say, verse 2, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, you who sit on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, execute judgment and righteousness, and deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. 
do no wrong and do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless or the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Okay, first three verses. With specificity, describe just how corrupt these leaders were, politically, governmentally, religiously, across the board, on every level. Let's uh, go through this, if you don't mind, just real quick. Um, righteousness, they were unrighteous. Deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor, they were oppressing. Do no wrong, they were doing wrong. Do no violence, they were very violent. And not only were they ver very violent, uh, notice who they were very violent to and with. The stranger, the fatherless, the widow, the innocent. <laughs> oh, God takes notice. God doesn't just take notice. He will avenge them. He will take and mete out a just judgment against them for doing that, this to these people. And that's what we're going to see. And by the way, again, and we've talked about this in prior chapters here in Jeremiah, if you don't get it at this point, then the rest of the chapter is going to be seen through a very long lens, a very wrong lens of interpretation, because it will seem as though God's judgment is disproportionate. It will seem unjust, because it's going to get pretty intense, as we're going to see. Verse 4, this is God's mercy here. For if you indeed do this thing, then shall enter the gates of this house, riding on horses and in chariots, accompanied by servants and people, kings who sit on the throne of David. But, verse 5, if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself. I mean, he's God. Who's he going to swear by? Himself, says the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. Um, Again, this is God's mercy. He's wanting these corrupt leaders to repent. And in so doing, He's giving them a choice. And you would think that this would be a no-brainer. Prosperity, blessing, a, an heir sitting on the throne of David. Okay, that's choice A. Choice B, desolation, devastation. Um, wait, don't tell me. I'll take blessing, prosperity, the throne of David. I don't want desolation, devastation. Sadly, they would choose the latter. For thus says the Lord, verse 6, to the house of the king of Judah, You are Gilead to me, the head of Lebanon. Oh, this was the most valuable and beautiful area in the land. The, the cedar trees 
the flourishing forests. And God is likening His people to Gilead. You're like that to me, beautiful and valuable, yet, oh, I wish that word wasn't there. I surely will make you a wilderness, cities which are not inhabited. I will prepare, verse 7, destroyers against you. See what I mean about the lens? You're going to send destroyers against us? Yeah. This is just. Wait a minute. This seems disproportionate. Well, we need to go back then. Don't make me go back to verses 1, one through 3. I will prepare destroyers against you, everyone with his weapons. They shall cut down your choice cedars and cast them into the fire. As we'll see next, when God does this, and God does this, it would send the same message, but in a very different way to the surrounding nations. Verse 8, And many nations will pass by this city, and everyone will say to his neighbor, Why has the Lord done so to this great city? Then they will answer, Because they, speaking of Judah, have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God. These are the Gentile nations saying this about God's people. Oh, why is God bringing such desolation and devastation and destruction to this, His city? Answer, because they, God's people, have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God, and worshiped other gods, and served them. Wait a minute. <laughs> These are the other nations saying that about God's people. That's an indictment. Now, we need a geography lesson here. Just bear with me. I want you to picture in your mind's eye a map of the world. And the center of that world, sorry to break it to you, is not America. I'll never forget when I was in Russia many years ago, and I was teaching at the Bible college there, and the students that I was privileged to have in my class at the time said, hey, Pastor J.D., come, we want to show you something. So they take me down the hall and there in the dorm, and they show me this world map. And I'm looking at this map, it's all in Russian, and uh, they say, hey, uh, what do you notice different about that map? And, you know, being the sharp, you know, savvy idiot that I am, I'm like, I don't know. It's in Russian? No, look closer. I'm like, I don't know. What's different about it? Russia's at the center of the map, not America. Yeah. It is. What? What's up with that? Where's the one with America at the center? Because everyone knows that America is the center of the world. What's your point? I have a point, believe it or not. I know it's shocking, but I do. Israel is the center. I want you to picture in your, your mind's eye this map now. You got this little sliver. <laughs> in fact, it's so small on the world map that they actually have to put the word Israel 
out into the Mediterranean Sea with a line. So you can say that that's Israel right there. You don't have to do that for Europe, Asia, or Africa. I mean, Israel, Europe, Africa, Asia, all around the bullseye, the epicenter, Israel. Here's the point. Israel was to be a light to the nations. If you were to travel in that day, you would travel through Israel, specifically Jerusalem. It connected Asia, Africa, and Europe. And it was to be as such a light to those nations. And now these nations are passing by this city, and they're going, whoa, what in the world happened? Why is their God, notice their God, doing this to them? Because they've forsaken their God. They've forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God. And they have worshipped other gods and served them. And it's coming from these Gentile nations. Why is this in our Bibles? Here's what I'm thinking. God's still going to be glorified in the eyes of the people who are watching our lives. Like with Israel then, either way, they're still going to look at our lives and they're going to give glory to God. This is not God's fault. God is not to blame, they're to blame. God has not forsaken them. They for, have forsaken God. Did you catch that? These are Gentile nations. Let's superimpose the template of our day by way of application. These are the non-believers. Could you imagine a verse 8 and a verse 9 in our lives said of us, why is this happening to them? Oh, because they have forsaken God. God will never leave them or forsake them. But God says, if you forsake me, I'm not going to force myself on you. I'll forsake you. That's why they've gone after other gods. In other words, they brought this on themselves. They have only themselves to blame. The blame for this cannot be laid on the Lord. This is on them. And it's the Gentile nation saying this. It's the non-believer saying this of the believer. Why? Answer, because. They, not God, they. This is just. God is just. God is righteous. God is fair. They're the ones that have brought this on themselves. And we're told why. I think we would do well. I mean, hey, you're not going to be a light, a witness for me to the non-believers slash Gentile nations. Um, it's not on me. They're still going to glorify me. Notice the Lord, their God. They're acknowledging that the Lord is God. 
They're just not acknowledging that the Lord is their God, but they are acknowledging that He is God. I'm getting so convicted right now. We're going to move on to verse 10. <laughs> oh, the Apostle Paul says that we're living epistles. We're living letters. People read the letters of our Christian lives. What do they read when they read the letter of my life? What do they see when they witness my life? Verse 10, weep not for the dead, nor bemoan him, Weep bitterly for him who goes away, for he shall return no more, nor see his native country. For thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah his father, who went from this place, he shall not return here anymore. But, verse 12, he shall die in the place where they have led him captive, and shall see this land no more. Okay, what's going on here? Well, for those of you that were with us in our study through Second Kings, this was a prophecy actually, and it was fulfilled exactly, not 99.999%, 100%, exactly as God said it would be. And these were evil kings who did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And God is pronouncing judgment on them, specifically this evil king, Shalom, who came from a good king, Josiah. Josiah was one of only nine good kings of whom it was said they did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. And Josiah was one of them. Now, we, we've talked about this. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but it is worthy of mentioning, I think at the very least, evil kings come from good kings and vice versa. I mean, Josiah was a good king. His sons, evil. And conversely, you had evil kings who had sons who would become kings, and they were good kings. What gives? Well, that should give every parent <laughs> some comfort. You can flip that whatever side you want, but it gives me great comfort. Anyway, that's just uh, my own uh, personal uh, problem, but we'll move on. Um, so this is not in chronological order, by the way. Uh, this is the judgment that is pronounced on this son of King Josiah, his name is Shalom, also known as Jehoahaz. And he is a king, but this judgment is pronounced on him. And Jeremiah is telling them, don't weep for him. Don't mourn for him. Mourn for his son because of what he's going to uh, what's going to happen to him. And it gets worse, verse 13. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness, and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages, and gives him nothing for his work. In other words, they take advantage of these workers, so if you have an employer that is not paying you fairly, cursed be him. No, that's, 
Well, in a way it kind of is, but that's the judgment now. Uh, you've taken advantage of them. And here again, uh, why is this in my Bible? Because God wants you to know that He knows. Oh, I, I see everything that's happening. Yeah, they, they didn't pay me. They're taking advantage of me. I know. I see everything. I'll take care of it. I know, I see, I care, and I'm going to take care of this. So he gives him nothing for his work, who says, I will build myself a white house with spacious chambers and cut out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Shall you reign, verse 15, because you enclose yourself in cedar? That's presumptuous. Did not your father, speaking of Josiah, a good king, eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. Um, Micah 6, 8, you know it. What does the Lord require of you, O man, that you do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. Josiah did, and it well went well with him. But you, you're reigning in unrighteousness and wickedness. Verse 16, again speaking of Josiah, your father, your dad, <laughs> he judged the cause, and I want you to listen very carefully, of the poor and needy. Stop right there. Oh, God cares about the poor and needy? You better believe it. The fatherless, the widow, does that sound a little bit familiar, like James, that we just studied through? Yes, it does. And yes, it should. He judged the cause, again speaking of Josiah, of the poor and needy, then it was well. Was not this knowing me, says the Lord? Yet, verse 17, your eyes and your heart are for nothing but your covetousness, for shedding innocent blood and practicing oppression and violence. Now, this speaks to a powerful principle replete throughout Scripture concerning leaders being measured by how they treat people who can't do anything in return. Let me say the same thing in a different way. When it comes to the poor and the needy, this is the measure, this is the gauge, this is the litmus test. We're going to see another one here in a moment coming up. But the measure of the godliness of a leader, or a Christian for that matter, is how they treat people who can do nothing for them in return, namely the poor, the needy. Uh, it's um, Proverbs, oh man, my uh, ever failing memory is failing. <laughs> I want to say 1911. It says, the one who gives to the poor lends to the Lord. Jesus said, whoever does this for the least of these, does it for me. The Lord takes notice. You're doing this for me. 
And by the way, you're lending to the Lord? I don't think so. The Lord is no debtor to no man. But you, you treat the poor who could do nothing in return. You bless them. You, you feed them. You don't say to them, like James says, an indictment of its own, be warm, be well fed. Hey, we'll do lunch sometime. Can we? I would love to eat a meal. We blow them off. We have no care. Here's an interesting one for you. I was just talking to my wife about this the other day. Do you know what the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was? Now, of course, the first thing that comes to mind, the go-to is sexual sin. Well, they were certainly uh, steeped in sexual sin. But if you read the account carefully and closely, here's what you'll find. The sin of Sodom was they had no regard for the poor. You mean, you, at first read, you read right over it, and you get right to the sexual immorality. And certainly they were judged for that and destroyed for that. But isn't it interesting that the sin that they were known for, first and foremost, top of the list, not sexual immorality, they didn't care about the poor. You think God takes seriously the poor and needy? Oh man, it rises to the level of God judging these leaders that were so corrupt. They were only feathering the nests of those who could in return feather their nests, so to speak. Under the table, the, the course of justice had been so corrupted. Doubtless you've heard that expression, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. They were so corrupt and no justice. And you think the poor and the needy are going to get any justice? No. They were oppressing them, taking advantage of them, using them, discarding them. And God says, uh, uh, oh no, you're not. <laughs> oh no, you're not. Again, I, I, before we move on to this next one, I don't know how to, I don't know if it's possible to overstate this. This is the measure. This is the gauge. You show me someone who takes care of the poor and needy, who can do nothing for them, I'll show you a godly man and a godly woman, let alone a godly leader. They're, they're caring for, concerned about the poor and the needy. That's the measure. That's the measure. Here's another one, verse 18, therefore, Thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. They shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, my brother, or alas, my sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, master, or alas, his glory. He, verse 19, shall be buried with the burial of a donkey. Oh, how are donkeys buried? Oh, dragged and cast out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. That's how. Wait, what? <laughs> That's what's going to happen to this guy? Yeah. 
Did that actually happen? Yes, exactly as God said it would. So what's the point again? And why is this in our Bibles? Because this is yet another measure of a leader, certainly. But this time it has to do with people either mourning or rejoicing your death. Wow, that's kind of morbid, isn't it, Pastor? Well, no. Listen to Proverbs 11.10. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. <laughs> and when the wicked perish, there is joyful shouting. He, he died. Party! Praise the Lord, he's dead. Good riddance. Thank you, God. Is that too much? I'm just telling you that's exactly what happened with this Jehoiakim. He was so evil that when he died, the people rejoiced. That's a pretty good. Hey, you know, know that when people rejoice when you die, that's a, that's because isn't it true that everyone has something good to say about the deceased? I mean, they could have been rotten to the core. I know some of you are looking at me like, are you going to share that one story? Why not? I can't resist. So there's these two brothers. They're so corrupt. They're so crooked. They're so dishonest. And they're so wealthy too. And they were known throughout the town. Well, one of these brothers dies. So the other brother goes to the pastor and says, Pastor, I'd like to have you do the memorial service for my brother, and I will pay off your building if you will say at my brother's memorial service that he was a saint. The pastor goes, okay, you're on. You'll pay off the building? Yeah. But you have to say that my brother was a saint. Pastor says, no problem. Pastor gets up there. <laughs> Please don't. I know it's a spoiler alert, but he gets up there and he goes on about the brother saying, you know, they, they were crooked and dishonest and corrupt and horrible, wicked, evil people. And then he says this, but compared to his brother, this brother was a saint. <laughs> there, I said it. Okay, let's, what's my point before I move on? I mean, at a memorial service for the deceased, you're going to come up with something good. They could have been wretches, but you'll come up with something good. If you can't, they must have been really wicked for you to rejoice. Can you imagine the memorial service? There's no weeping. They're partying. The pastor gets up there and he's like praising God. The worship team is up there singing songs. Praise God, this guy's dead. That means he must have been really wicked. Do, do you get it so we can move on? Say yes. We'll move on. Okay. Verse 20. Go up to Lebanon and cry out, and lift up your voice in Bashan. Cry from Abarim, for all your lovers are destroyed. I spoke to you, listen to this, in your prosperity, but you said, I will not hear. Hang on to that. 
this has been your manner from your youth that you did not obey my voice. Okay. Conviction time. Uh, I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not hear. Let's be honest with ourselves, okay? Is that not true of us? If we're honest with ourselves, would we not have to admit that when things are going good, we're not really hearing the Lord? But boy, let adversity strike. I'm all ears. Oh Lord. <laughs> this is Ecclesiastes 7.14 basically goes like this. During times of prosperity, when things are good, praise the Lord. Thank God. Enjoy the prosperity. But when, I wish it didn't say when, I wish it said if by chance. No, when adversity strikes, and adversity will strike, stop and consider your ways, and realize that God allows one as well as the other, so that no man can discover his future. Meaning that God will bring prosperity alongside with the adversity, if for no other reason He'll allow adversity to strike, just so He can get our attention. Because when things are going good, oh my goodness, we're not, even in our prayer life, it says, bless them, bless this, thank you God, and off you go. Hey, things are going good. But boy, let adversity strike. And I mean, your prayer life changes. Oh, God. Oh, now I got your attention. I've been trying to speak to you, but you're so busy. You're going to and fro, back and forth. And, and things are good. And you're not hearing my voice. Because the volume of your prosperity in your life is too loud. And when I speak, I speak in that still small voice. And you will not hear me when things are going good. So the only way I'm going to get you to hear me is to allow adversity. Then you're listening. Oh, we do it. I do it. Come on, I'll admit. When things are going good, ah, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Adversity strikes. Oh God, what, what, what do you want to show me here? Speak to me, Lord. And I mean, His Word comes alive. Well, His Word is alive. It's active. But isn't it true? When, when things are going good and you're in the Word, you just kind of read it and praise the Lord. That was, you know, great devotional and time in the Word. But boy, you're going through a trial and adversity strikes. Every word is like, oh, that's for me. That's for me. Come on, why are you looking at me like that? I thought we were going to be honest with ourselves. I, I, before I entered the pastorate, I remember times when, you know, I would just leave church thinking, you know, I didn't really get much out of that. Oh, really? And then I would talk to my brother in Christ, who's like, going through it, man. I mean, going through it. He's like, man, that really spoke to me. I'm like, did we hear the same teaching? Did you, did, we, did you? Because, you know, for me, it was like, yeah, it was, it was good teaching. For him, it was like life and death. He was hanging on to every word, and God was speaking to him. And it was like every word was for him. Why? Oh, because of the adversity. Adversity has a way, doesn't it? 
Isn't it true when, when you're going through it and you're in the Word of God, it's like, you've read that verse a thousand. I know I'm spitting, I'm so sorry, free baptisms tonight. It's like every verse, I mean, you've, you've read it a thousand times. You've committed it to memory. But it's like you're reading it for the first time. Why? Because God's speaking to you and you're listening. Why are you listening? Because now God's got your attention. How did God get your attention? He allowed adversity to strike. See, prior, heretofore, He did not have your attention, because things were going really good. I, I heard it said this way, it's always stuck with me over the years, you just glide and abide. I mean, you're just on Christian cruise control. Everything's going good. Why rock the boat? Hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Oh, really? I see how it is. You know, I kind of miss you. We haven't talked in a while. Been so busy in your prosperity. Yeah, we need to talk. <laughs> Here comes the adversity. What do you want to say, Lord? Speak. Your servant is listening. Verse 22. The wind shall eat up all your rulers. Uh, some of your translations, this is crazy, but some of your translations render that word rulers, pastors. I'm going to leave that one right there. Leaders, rulers, pastors, shepherds. And here's that word again. We need to talk about this. And your lovers shall go into captivity. Surely then you will be ashamed and humiliated for all your wickedness. O inhabitant of Lebanon, verse 23, making your nest in the cedars. How gracious will you be when pangs come upon you like the pain of a woman in labor? Okay. We need to uh, talk about this reference to these lovers. Who is this in reference to? Well, it's in reference to those complicit, those complicit political allies of these corrupt leaders. They're just as guilty. They were just as complicit in their corruption. These are the lovers. Oh, they're going to go into captivity too. Did this happen? You better believe it happened. Exactly as God said it would, oh, would to God, that we would be so careful when it comes to this. I want to be careful even how I say this. Man. Wait, let me, let me try this. I'm going to ask you a question. It's not rhetorical. Do you really believe, you don't have to answer out loud, but just in your heart before the Lord, do you really believe that the corruption in this world today is as bad as it was in Jeremiah's day? Can I ask you another follow-up question to that? Do you believe that it's actually worse, the corruption? Uh, maybe the question needs to really be, are we complicit in that? Um, I might as well take it a step further. Lord, you're going to have to help me on this. Are we posting on social media complicit 
posts in support of corrupt leaders. You're complicit. Wait, instead of calling them out, you're complicit? Instead of calling them out for their corruption and their evil and their wickedness, you're actually supporting them? How about this one, making excuses for them? Oh, come on, he's not a pastor. Excuse me? So you're just going to turn a blind eye to the evil, wicked corruption and sin? You're complicit. I'm sorry. You're complicit. And you'll have to answer for that. You'll have to give an account for that. And shame on you, by the way. I'm sorry. Obviously, I need to take this issue to the Lord, maybe some more, huh? Well, let's move on. Verse 24. As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, this is another one now, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. This is uh, along the same lines as the, uh, the Lebanon, the forests, as valuable and beautiful and significant and important. The signet ring, that was your signature. And what God is saying is, just like I'm going to destroy those cedars, I'm going to take this signet off my right hand. And I, verse 25, will give you into the hand of those who seek your life, and into the hand of those whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. Well, that's a little bit harsh. No, it's not. That seems kind of disproportionate. No, it's not. This is just. Well, wait a minute. You mean to tell me, like we saw last week in chapter 21, which just kind of spills over into chapter 22, you mean to tell me that God is actually fighting against His own people? Yeah. See, and we talked about this last week, just real quick, very important. Their problem was not the Babylonians. Their problem was God. And when God is your problem, God is your solution, your only solution. Romans 8.31 says, and you know this well, it's a great promise. If God is for you, who can be against you? But that goes the other way too. If God is against you, who's going to be for you? If you're coming up against God, then God is your problem. And that was the problem. This is against me. I'm going to deliver you into the hands of the Babylonians. So, verse 26, I will cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. <laughs> 
That's a life verse, right? Somebody has that on their wall, framed wallpaper, probably not. Verse 27, But to the land to which they desire to return, they, there they shall not return. Is this man, verse 28, Coniah, a despised, broken idol, interesting wording, and it gets even more interesting, a vessel in which is no pleasure. Now again, you'll forgive me, but in the original language, this vessel in which there is no pleasure is actually speaking of a toilet. You okay? Wait a minute, what, what's your, what? This Koniah down the toilet, despised, a, a vessel in which there is no pleasure. How about this one, a broken idol? Why is that significant? Because remember the reason why God is going to deliver them into the hands of the Babylonians is because Babylon was idol capital of the world. It was like God saying, hey, you like idols, do you? Okay, you win. You want, you want your idols? I'm going to send you all expense paid trip to Babylon. I will cure you of your idolatry. And it worked. You will not read after the Babylonian captivity of idolatry being the sin in which the Israelites, and Judah in particularly, were involved. It worked. This is, again, this is just. This is just. You, you've chosen this over me. You've rejected me. You've forsaken me. I'm going to give you over to that. Because your mind's already made up. Your heart is already hardened. Your neck is already stiffened. Your fate is already sealed. I'm not going to fight with you. If that's the, I'm not going to force myself on you. You've already made your choice. And you've chosen idolatry. So Romans 1, I'm going to give you over to it. You can have it. Bon appetit. <laughs> Get your fill of it. Oh, you want meat to eat? You've rejected my manna from heaven? There every morning, delicious by the way, and you don't want the manna anymore? You want meat to eat? Okay, have some quail, and you'll get your fill of it. And how many of them died? with the meat stuck between their teeth. Very graphic. You want meat? You want flesh? Here, have it. You, you don't want me. You've already made your choice. I'm going to give you over to that choice. I know this is hard, but it's true. A vessel in which is no pleasure. Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? <laughs> Verse 29, we'll finish the chapter, verse 29 and 30. Listen to this. Oh, earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. Now, 
for those who are interested, uh, this is a fascinating study when you get into the genealogy of the Savior in both Matthew and Luke, from Mary and Joseph. And what you'll find, if you're interested in doing this, it is so fascinating. Jesus was the only one who could sit on the throne of David by way of Joseph and Mary. Mary. And that's where the two genealogies differ between Matthew and Luke. It is so interesting. I wish we had time. We don't. I want to bring the chapter to an end this way before we partake together of communion. This is arguably the harshest of judgments, and I'll explain why. God is appealing to the earth to hear. The implication is, is that man will not hear. So I have to resort to the earth. Earth, 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 hear. They're not hearing me. You know it's bad when God has to go to the earth to hear, because man has shut his ear. You know what's sad? And, it, and throughout the Old Testament, hear, O Israel, hear. The New Testament, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. The question is never, is God speaking? God is always speaking. The question is, are we listening? Do we hear? And I'm, when, I, when I say hear, I, you know, we hear, but we're not really hearing. You know how it is? I remember growing up as a kid, I've shared this before, my mom, she had this thick accent, this high-pitched voice. And she would, when she got mad at me, which was like all the time, she would say, in, in, that, I mean, it was ear-piercing, Wahido! And, I, it, and when she hit that, that note in that octave, in that range, that key, that was it. I, I, I didn't hear anything else. I just, I, I tuned her out. Oh, I, I, I still heard, I didn't hear. Okay, I think that, that worked, I hope. That's what God's saying. You're tuning me out. Hear. Listen. Maybe that's, in a word, the word for us tonight. Hear. Listen. Well, Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. Ah, I never like to rush through communion. I appreciate your patience, but it's the account of what we affectionately refer to as the Last Supper. And Luke writes, verse 14, when the hour had come, he, speaking of Jesus, sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. And he says it for a second time, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, 
this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you'll take the packaging for those of you that are here online, if you'll just have the bread and just hold on to it for a moment. You know, every It just brings you back. I need to remember this. I need to remember the price that was paid for me. I need to remember that, hey, uh, what we're doing here tonight will find its ultimate fulfillment in His kingdom at the wedding feast of the Lamb. I need to be, be reminded of that, especially these days. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, remember? Oh yeah, that's right. That's kind of a game changer, isn't it? When you remember, you have a pastor, I'm, I'm really going through it. I know. Remember. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. Um, his body was broken for me. His blood was shed for me. He purchased me. I am not my own, but I am bought and paid for with the price. I'm saved. What was my problem again? See, when you view whatever you're going through, through the lens of eternity, it just changes the whole complexion of it. And I think that's what the Savior had in mind when He took that bread and said, I want you to, whenever you do this, I want you to do this in remembrance of me and what I did for you. Would you partake with me? Thank you, Lord. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for your body, all that you went through, the beatings, the whippings, the piercings. For us, man, you must really love us, Lord. Greater love has no one, no man. than the one who would lay down his life for another. And you did that for us. And that does change everything, as rightfully it should. And so, Lord, thank you for giving us this to do, so that we would remember and not forget. Thank you, Lord. Luke goes on to write, likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. If you'll take the remainder of the packaging and just again hold on to it for a moment, and those online, we hold in our hands a symbol that 
represents the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And it's the blood of the new covenant in His blood, His shed blood, for the remission, remission of all of our sins, once and for all. Um, when I was a new believer, this was many, many years ago, 40 years ago plus now, but I remember when I was reading the Bible through for the first time, I, I started in Genesis. Probably shouldn't have done that. I was a blank slate. And I started in Genesis, I get into Exodus and then Leviticus. I mean, that was so gnarly because, you know, the priests had to take these animals and, and sacrifice them and sprinkle the blood. And I'm like, I mean, every time they sinned, they had to sacrifice an, a, a, an animal and a lamb and shed its blood whole. I mean, I'm driving by churches looking for livestock in the parking lots, thinking, man, that's, that's a lot of blood. And then I got to the New Testament. By the way, before I even stepped foot in a church, six months. I'm not, at the time, I would, well, anyway, again, enough of my problems. Anyway, I, I, I got to the New Testament, and I mean, it was like, oh! I get it now. You're the sacrifice. You're the Passover lamb. Your blood, no wonder there's no livestock in the parking lots. No need. You, you, you're the sacrifice. It's all pointed to you and your blood shed. Oh, thank you, God. I don't like killing animals, obviously. And so you were the lamb that was slain and your blood shed. Oh, it was, I mean, <laughs> I was so relieved. I was so thankful. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, I wish we would still have that same gratitude that we had when we first knew Him. Maybe that can be renewed tonight as we partake. Would you partake with me? <laughs> Pono, why don't you come up? Please stand. We'll close in prayer and song. Lord, I, oh, please, Lord, don't let this just be this formality, this even ritual that we do on the first Thursday of each month, where it just becomes rote and meaningless. No. Lord, I pray that what we just did in partaking together of the bread and the cup would just renew us, remind us, restore unto us the joy of our salvation and what You did for us. You're the sacrifice. You went to that cross, Your body broken and Your blood shed. And you paid it all once and for all. And Lord, thank you. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. We love you so much. In Jesus' name.